You're listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hello there, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And here we go with episode 53, and I hope everyone remains safe and healthy out there as we move into the middle of December. Now, it's a misty, wet day here in central Illinois, which is perfect for having a cup of coffee and putting a show together. Now, before we get to the show, I want to take a minute to thank all of the show's patrons, including our newest Patreon supporter, Ben Stiganga. Thank you so much, Ben. Now, Ben and I got to meet and hang out in Peru a few years ago, and hopefully we'll be hearing more from him soon. And, you know, I'm so thankful for all the folks who support the show and help to keep it rolling along. And uh, if you're out there listening and you'd like to kick in a few bucks, you can do so via Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash so much pingle and so much pingle is all one word. You can also make one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo and just drop me an email to so much pingle at gmail.com for more details. Now, one more thing before we get to our episode. If you listen to the Bob is Back episode a few weeks back, uh, I think that was episode 51. And then you bought a calendar. I want to say thank you very much. Uh, if you're curious, Bob broke last year's record for calendar orders by more than 300. Over 1,100 calendars. And as most of you know, all of the proceeds go to preserving rainforest habitat for herps and birds and jaguars and so forth. Great work, Bob. And thanks again, everyone. Okay, now our guest this week is Tony Daly Cruz. Uh, so I was on a conference call a few weeks ago with Tony and some other folks, and he was representing the Rattlesnake Conservancy. And while we were talking, you know, a little bell went ding somewhere in my brain. And at the end of the call, I asked Tony if he would come onto the show and talk about the Rattlesnake Conservancy. And he graciously said yes. Now, I knew a little bit, but not a lot about this nonprofit organization. So I learned quite a bit from my conversation with Tony, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I mean, it's rattlesnake, so come on. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the show. On today's show, we have Tony Daly Cruz. Welcome to the show, Tony. Thank you. Happy to be here. And uh, we've uh, asked you to come on the show today. We're going to talk about the the Rattlesnake Conservancy and uh, anything else you care to talk about. Uh you and I were on a, a conference call, uh, I think maybe a week ago, and uh, we have the sort of a collaborative project going, um, you with the Rattlesnake Conservancy and the IUCN Viper Specialist Group, and then on my end, it was the uh, the Herp Mapper Project. So it was a interesting uh, conversation. During the conversation, I was like, man, I really, I need to get somebody on the, on the show uh, from the Rattlesnake Conservancy. I need to find out more about that. And uh, you graciously volunteered, so uh, here you are. Yeah, I thought I'd only volunteer once in my life. Uh, I was in, in the Army for a few years, and here I am doing it again. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, hopefully this won't be the same as your Army experience, whatever that was. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, tell, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, and I, I know you're in, in uh, Arizona, you're in Mountain Time, but I don't know much more about that. So tell me, 
or where you live and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, so um, I, I live just south of Buckeye um, in Arizona, which is just outside of Phoenix. Um, lived down in the Rainbow Valley area, moved out here back in 2018 uh, at the end of the year, moving out from Florida, um, and actually going to be moving back to Florida here pretty soon. We've got oh, wow. uh, some awesome programs starting up down there in Florida, and we're really getting getting things up and running down there, so I'm really excited about it. But I'm happy to be on the show and you know talk to you uh, about the Rattlesnake Conservancy and share a little bit about myself. Um, you know, I went to the University of North Florida um, there in, in Jacksonville, um, where I got my bachelor's degree in biology um, with a focus on ecology and evolutionary biology. Um, while I was in college, I, I got a job with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and worked with them for about five years. Um, did uh, Endangered Species Act consultation with them, uh, primarily with like eastern indigo snakes and sand skinks. And then uh, a few years ago, decided, you know, to try something new, come out to the desert for a few years and check it out. Um, picked up a job with the uh, Department of Energy, working for them for a while, and then came over to BLM and um, all while uh, running the Rattlesnake Conservancy, because we were officially established like back in uh, 2015. Um, on paper, it's 2017, but we started getting things up and running in 2015. Uh, and, you know, ever since then, um, we've been growing the Rattlesnake Conservancy little by little. It started as just a um, volunteer organization with just, you know, some big ideas from, you know, a couple of guys, uh, myself and Chase Pirtle kind of got together wanting to do something for uh, Eastern Diamondback rattlesnakes, and it's kind of grown a lot since then um, into what it is now. So the germ of the idea revolved around one one species, the the Eastern Diamondback. Is that is that's that where correct? it started? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, down there in the southeast, you know, we saw like the, the Eastern Diamondback had been petitioned for listing to the Endangered Species Act. And there really just hadn't been any action happening with it. You know, it had been sitting with Fish and Wildlife Service for a while. Um, and it's still still hanging out there for a little bit. Um, but it looks like they're they're planning and we're part of that process for um, developing the species status assessment for the Eastern Diamondback um, to help inform a listing decision for that species. But, you know, as we started working with the Eastern Diamondbacks and, and seeing that there really wasn't uh, a lot in the way of representation for research or advocacy or really any level of, of work with these species. There wasn't a lot of groups out there doing much with rattlesnakes in general. So, you know, we changed our mission to focus more broadly on all species of rattlesnake when we start getting a lot of folks that were interested in working with us and kind of networking and doing good things for conservation of rattlesnakes. It's hard to get anything done these days without uh, uh, a social media presence. That's, man, that's 100% true. Yeah, it really requires you to have an organization that's really out there, Twitter and uh, Facebook and so on and so forth. And it requires having people drive that as well. You can't just put up a web page. You've got to have people moving things forward and making posts and uh, keeping the page, uh, the organization uh, up front, you know, by, by through social media. It just can't happen anymore without it, I don't think. No, I hundred percent agree. I mean, that's one of our, our one of the best ways that we connect with people to communicate our message with conservation, teaching people about rattlesnakes, how to coexist with them, um, about just nature in general. You know, it's it's funny. Fifteen years ago, um, you know, maybe even a little bit longer. It's like having a web page was like the ticket to being something official, and now it's um like you said, you got to have the the Twitter and the TikTok and Facebook and all these different things and 
Um, I'll tell you what, our, our volunteer base that helps out with our social media, um, they are they are our rock stars because, I mean, it takes a lot of time and effort for them to put together the material to get out to people and, and reach people, um, you know, and, and get the messaging through. Because I'm sure, as you know, after having lots of different scientists on this program is um, science communication is tough, right? Especially when you're trying to get that through a social media um, um, platform. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then... <laughs> So this is nothing on, on you or anybody else, but everything is weighted too. You have to be, you have to be on message. You have to, you know, make your case, but boy, you just can't screw anything up either because it, it's just costly to make mistakes. So people have to be very careful with how they say things and what they say and, you know, make sure everybody's in the group is on message and there's no, uh, you know, there's not no mistakes made in that regard too. It's kind of interesting as a, Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, you have this court of public opinion there, you know, always hanging over your head, no matter what it is, whether you're a bowling league or or, or the Rattlesnake Conservancy or whatever it is. There's always people that are going to take you to task. Oh, yeah. We've, right, we've you know? had it all. <laughs> I yeah. mean, you know, we get the messages, you know, every now and again with, you know, someone that's got, you know, a, a truck bed full of rattlesnakes that they killed. You know, we've got the folks that put us on blast for um, you know, any number of reasons. And, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely a challenge dealing with those, but I, I think overall it's, it's rewarding and it, um, it's something that does, does make a difference. Um, you know, and a lot of people have not heard about, you know, many of these species of rattlesnakes, like we do like a meet the species Monday thing. And, you know, we've got a lot of people that follow our page who, you know, maybe they met us at like a conservation festival or they happen to come to a training course or something. And now all of a sudden, you know, they're learning about all these species of rattlesnake they had no idea even existed and some of the unique, you know, portions of, of their natural history and things like that. It's pretty cool. Okay. Well, I want to, I want to kind of tear into the, the organization, what, what you're doing in, in terms of outreach and things like that. But, uh, before we do, uh, tell me, I, I assume everybody's a volunteer. No, no. So we, we do have two paid employees that are full time with the organization. Oh, okay. Yep. Um, we also have a, a network of instructors that help out with our venomous training courses. Um, right now, I think we've got 14 that are certified to be instructors for like some of our training courses that we do. And I mean, those are all over the country from California, Arizona, um, Alabama, Florida, pretty much the whole Southeast and some other areas. Um, also got a bunch of volunteers that help out with everything from research projects to husbandry at the facility education and outreach events, um, social media. I mean, we've got kind of a little bit of everything and another arm that's kind of developing right now um, for having some help with volunteers is uh, kind of like our our political arm of getting involved in, you know, lobbying, um, of trying to like make a difference for things like rattlesnake roundups and, um, you know, trying to work with states to, to get bag limits in place on species if that's something they don't have and just in, in generally trying to stay in the loop with anything that might affect rattlesnakes and, uh, and legislation out there. Okay. Very good. And so this organization is, is, uh, driven by, uh, membership, what we call memberships or donations. Yeah. Or what you want to call it. Uh, and do you, do you get grants is grant, uh, grant writing part of the, <laughs> yeah. of the process too? Oh yeah. Yeah. So just like any traditional 501c3, you know, it's, um, it's grant writing, it's, donations. Um, and, you know, quite honestly, you know, one of the things that we recognized early on when starting this organization is we knew that 
donations for rattlesnake conservation are going to be slim. We knew that up front walking into it. And, you know, over the years, we, we have grown a lot as, as far as the amount of donations that we receive and like members that donate and stuff like that. But a big portion of our revenue is self-generated, right? That's through our, our training courses, our summer camps, things like that, that, you know, we had to find a way to hustle for rattlesnakes, you know what I mean? So you, you have to find <laughs> a lot of different different ways and be creative um, when it comes to conservation of rattlesnakes. Okay. Okay. So let's, let's start first with the, the educational aspect. You've already mentioned a couple of things here, uh, but let's start with the kitties. What are you, what are you doing for the kids? Think of the children, yeah. Tony. <laughs> yeah, no, that, you know, education is the bread and butter of what we do. You know, our, our mission is to conserve rattlesnakes and their habitat through research and education, right? So our two biggest arms of what we're going to be doing is focusing on, on those two things, research and education. And, you know, our education programs, a big portion of it's based out of our facility in Jacksonville. Um, we're co-located with Tree Hill Nature Center, which is kind of like a, a unique relationship we set up with them. They've got this awesome nature facility that's like right in the middle of, um, you know, downtown Jacksonville area. It's really accessible to a lot of people around there. Um, and they had some space they weren't using in the facility. So we we're like, hey, what do you think about maybe setting up a partnership here that we could set up some offices, rent out some space from you, set up a classroom and have a, a display with some of our native venomous snakes of the Southeast. And it's kind of blossomed into this really beautiful partnership where, um, you know, we've been working together on a number of projects, but it's really given us the opportunity to reach an audience that we hadn't previously. Um, you know, when we first started, a lot of our education events we would do would be kind of like, um, I, I don't know if you in, in your area, you guys have like fall festival type things where, you know, everyone gets together and there's like vendors and stuff like that out there. But it's a big thing in the southeast where they have got those, you know, big, big festival type things. And we'd go to a lot of those. Some of them are conservation focused, some of them not so much. And that's where we'd reach a lot of people at those events. Um, but and we're still doing those. Um, you know, we do those throughout the year. We get requests all the time. Um, but at our facility, it's given us the opportunity to start things like summer camps. Um, we started something called Conservation Camp two years ago. And the first year was a huge hit, um, which is kind of unusual for, you know, a first year summer camp type situation. And, you know, our vision of what these summer camps would be would be to introduce kids to a bunch of different parts of conservation, not just herpetology, getting them out in the woods, non-traditional classroom, and just give them the opportunity to connect with nature and, you know, develop that passion for what they're interested in, whether it's turtles, snakes, birds, plants, whatever it is that they want to get into. And we've really been excited getting that program off the ground. Okay. And, that, and that's local to Jacksonville. It is, yeah, and we're, okay. we're working on opening that in some other areas as well. Okay, well, and um, so you know, if a kid, you get kids out there and they plant trees, or they, um, what they look for birds, or they, so there's something organized, uh, or several different things organized depending on what they're interested in, or how does that work? Oh yeah, so like every week we kind of have a, a theme to it, and. The, the students in the camp that week, have, they select their own wildlife monitoring project together. So they vote on what they want to do. So they'll get together for a week and they'll say, you know, one of them might want to do amphibians where they go out and, you know, they put um, a bunch of PVC pipes all over the place and monitoring for tree frogs in the area. Um, another one might have more interest in like, you know, um, bird watching or, or nests or something like that. So every, every cohort that kind of comes through collectively picks these projects. And at the end, um, you know, they're able to kind of present their project and what they worked on throughout the week and what they learned on how to monitor those species that they were doing, which is really cool. 
This is cool. So is this is this associated? Is this sort of a standalone camp, or it's it's not associated with the school district or anything like that? Or how is no, it? Work? This this one's one hundred percent created by our team. Um, you know, okay. Tiffany Bright. Okay. Yeah, Tiffany Bright, our Southeast Regional Director down there. She's um kind of heads up the facility right now. Um, she's she's the one who runs the camp, and you know, we hire some seasonals. Um, actually, this next year we're bringing in some work study students from like the local university there at UNF and um, Florida State College at Jacksonville to try and get some, you know, uh, early college students involved in helping teach STEM education to young people. Okay. That sounds great. Shout out to Tiffany Bright too. Oh yeah. She's awesome. Very cool. Uh, uh, so we, we've got uh, something going for the kids. And so uh, what about, uh, so you do uh, any classroom work where you bring, you know, you bring a rattlesnake to a classroom. If a teacher wants to do a, uh, you know, a section on herpetology or, or snakes or something or, yeah, absolutely. You get requests I, like that? Oh, we, we do. And as you might imagine, sometimes we get a little bit of pushback, too, about bringing rattlesnakes in the classroom. So, you know, sure. we'll bring, yeah, yeah, we bring some non-venomous stuff in there sometimes, these classrooms. But um, we work with homeschool groups and public schools um, in the whole southeast area. Um, like, actually, my, my background was like I was homeschooled for a number of years when I was younger. So um, I have kind of a special place in my heart for, you know, connecting with some of these homeschool groups and some non-traditional classroom settings. But also, um, you know, we we try and work with, especially in Duval County, where our facility is located, um, our education team down there kind of pulled together and looked at what are the standards and the curriculums for the county for what kids have to learn at various grade levels and have started developing um, classroom activities that they can bring kids on a field uh, field trip and actually meet some of the uh, standards for Duval County there that they have to meet for that grade uh, grade level, which is a great opportunity for them as well. Okay, very good. Uh, and and so you also you mentioned the, that you did some what what you call venomous training, uh, and so I assume that's you're doing like first responder training and things like that. Yeah, so it's a pretty big program, uh, and like I mentioned, it's one of the main ways we've really been able to stay um, viable as an organization. But um, initially, it started uh, when Camp Blanding Joint Training Center. I had a, a connection there. Um, asked us, you know, if they if one of us could come out and teach them how to safely work with rattlesnakes because they were having like big eastern diamondbacks showing up on the range and you know they didn't feel comfortable moving these big heavy bodied snakes and rightfully so. Um, I still remember the first training course we ever uh, ever did a number of years ago. There was one guy in the course he'd been deployed to Iraq, Afghanistan six times, um, and he he told us when we first took a cottonmouth out that he was like, this is the most scared I've ever been in my life. And I've been in combat zones six times and it was really rewarding to, to work with this guy and get him to the point where he felt comfortable, you know, moving the snake and kind of getting over that initial fear that he had. And once we did that training course and, you know, saw how much of an impact it made on that insulation and the ability of them to be able to kind of handle their own problems there without having to try and get, you know, someone else to come from, you know, off base, probably charge him an arm and a leg to come move a snake. It was like, all right, let's let's work with you guys to try and get you training that that you're safe and professional um, and also ethical. So those are kind of like the big things that we really focus on is um, safety and ethics and, and teaching right. people how to work with them. Right. One of my previous shows, I talked to Joe Ehrenberger, who is, is uh, along with Matt Cage, has done some training along the same lines and uh, he's often spoke about 
that it's a transformative experience for many people. It is. They come in there and they just have zero experience with these animals and they're, they're really, un, they're kind of shaken. Uh, it, it's sort of so foreign to them. And then they come out the other side and they are completely different about the entire affair from where they started. You know, they may have been on the other side of the room when the training started, you know, oh, are yeah. you doing this? No, not me. And then by the end, they're, you know, they're, they're totally integrated into the, into the program. Yeah. We get a pretty broad spectrum of people that come through our classes. Like, you know, you get some that are like that where it's, you know, they've never been around a snake or if they have been, it was one of those, like you said, it's like 10 foot pole away from them. Right. And even when they get to the classroom, you know, you kind of have to work with them and get them comfortable with the situation before they get near them. And then we've also got the other end of the spectrum where we get really experienced people who come and take the training courses because they, they know that we have, um, a certain way that we teach and uh, it's very safe. They learn a lot more than what they're expecting to most of the time. Cause you know, we feel like a two day training course is our level one course that we do. And it's uh, it's pretty intensive. You know, the first day is, is all academics and, you know, we're covering, you know, snakes, of venomous snakes of the area that they live in. We're getting into venom toxinology, all kinds of stuff on, on these animals. And then the next day is almost entirely hands-on. Um, and we've actually, and, and I and I know Joe really well. We refer people to uh, to some of his training courses um, in Colorado, you know, out there whenever they're in the area because we don't have any classes up in that area. Um, oh, cool. We um we've been expanding the courses a lot. We've we've started partnering with other organizations like Save the Snakes and the Amphibian Foundation and a few others where they're teaching the curriculum that we developed for the training courses um, for their organizations because obviously we can't be everywhere at once. So. We figured we we teach other people how to do it, do a train the trainer, and it's it's really kind of blossomed into a, a beautiful program. Are you involved with the training yourself? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm one of the uh, the instructors. I've got a, a lot of passion for teaching about venom toxinology, um, hands-on training. You know, I'm, I was the one who originally put the training course together, but as you might imagine, over the years these things grow and expand. They're dynamic. New things get added. Things get taken out. Um, we try and stay on top of the current science for things, you know, even like snake bite management, even the last couple of years has significantly changed. And we try and stay on top of what we, how we should be doing pre-hospital management for snake bite. I see. And I'm, I'm sure this, the state, does the state have something to say about your, your activity, your training activities? What, how does that tie in? Because yeah. there, are, you know, there are laws and there are regulations and rules. And, and uh, of course I, the people taking your courses need to know that stuff too, but, uh, I'm sure there's some something to do with this with uh, Arizona or Florida, uh, wherever you're giving the training uh, at. There's there's some input from the state on these things in terms of permits and things. Absolutely, you know, Florida is I, I think aside from states that completely ban venomous snakes, is probably one of the the strictest out there when it comes to having a permit to keep venomous snakes, whether it's as an organization or as an individual. And one of the things that we really focus on in our training courses is whatever state that we're hosting it in is making sure people are fully aware of what they can and cannot do when working with them. Like when we teach a class here in Arizona, for example, um, we really kind of hone in a lot on the ethics portion of herping here in Arizona, you know, because so many people, you know, you kind of have that herp tourism thing going on here in Arizona and be like, hey, just because just because you can doesn't mean you should. Uh, and also focusing on, you know, what species are protected here. Um, in Florida, if you don't have a venomous permit, you can't even relocate a snake um, without that permit, right? At least not legally. 
And we have to make sure people are aware of that. Like when you're in the class, like, hey, we're here with you. You're working under a permit right now. But once you leave the training course, in, unless you go out and get a permit, you're not able to, to do anything. Um, we are trying to champion something with Florida right now to get some legislation to have basically a relocator's permit there um, that has, you know, some training requirements so people do it right. But it's it can be a challenge um, when you've got courses in different states. And I mean, we have people travel from all over the place to take these. We've had people from Canada and um, other parts of uh, the U.S. flying to take training courses. And we have to kind of take that into consideration when we're teaching a class. I see. OK, so how many think how many people do you think you've run through these these training courses? Do you have a, a count? Yeah, we're over 600 people that have gone through our training courses before. So quite a few. That's amazing. Uh, is there anything else in the educational realm that you're, you're, you're doing besides, I mean, you do probably, you know, you social media outreach and all that, but is there anything else you're doing as far as training or education? Yeah. So we, we've got a couple of our, our education program is really kind of hitting its stride recently, especially, um, we just hired on a, a new person. Um, her name's Megan Grams. Um, she's our, our education coordinator. So her full-time job, um, 40 hours a week, is education for the Rattlesnake Conservancy. And, you know, that ranges from everything that we were talking about earlier um, with camps and classroom stuff to on-site activities that we do for kids, um, as well as working with our, our Southeast um, regional manager there to kind of look at um, what online resources we can give. Um, you may have seen on our website, we have a bunch of like educator resources on there that are free for teachers or parents or whomever to download, you know, whether it's coloring books or activities, things to learn about rattlesnakes in a, in a fun way and are easy to recreate in a home setting. Yeah. I saw the coloring book um, link on there. Did, did, what is, what is her name? Stephanie? I'm sorry. Um, Megan Grams was Megan. our education okay. coordinator. She didn't put all those together, but um, Mike Van Valen actually assisted with doing the um, the illustrations for those coloring books, and okay. uh, we kind of put together a, a collaborative book of something that we can put out there, and um, we provide that to for free to everyone. Like um, recently, we did an education outreach thing at the uh, Arizona Diamondback Stadium here uh, in Phoenix, and handed out a bunch of those coloring books that we, we did collaboratively with the, uh, the diamondbacks to get a bunch of kids engaged with what we do there. So that was a pretty cool event. Awesome. So shout out to, uh, uh, Mike as well for, oh, yeah, for sure. his help. Very cool. All right. And, and so you have a, the educational aspect of this organization, but there's also a research component to it as well. Correct. Oh yeah. Yeah. So What's really unique, I think, about our organization, um, for one, we provide grants for um, venomous reptile research, and not many groups out there have something that's solely dedicated to that that's not medically focused, right? You know, a lot of the big grants out there, you know, you're going to get from like uh, NSF or something like that, are going to be focused on um, venomics or transcriptomics or something where you're going to be gathering information that's going to be for medical purposes, not necessarily for the sake of natural history study or conservation of the species. You know, you might get like these little mini grants from, you know, a state fish and wildlife agency to, to help out. But, um, you know, we've made a really big effort, even though we've got a small budget as an organization to try and make sure we offer grants every year to help out because even a small grant um, for like a grad student really makes a big difference for them. You know, we just recently, funded a, a project that they're going to be looking at wildfire impacts on montane species of rattlesnake in, in uh, Texas and New Mexico. And 
what's kind of cool about the project is it's really, really low cost, but has a big impact on conservation because the only costs are really travel and, you know, food and stuff for them while they're out in the field. You know, a lot of the equipment is not things they need to go buy over and over again. They can keep using it. And we get a big, big impact on conservation outcomes from that for, you know, management objectives for like some of the, um, uh, some of the land managers out there and things like that. So, um, We've got a bunch of uh, internal projects we're working on as well that we're real excited to to be working on as well. Well, it's inter- you know I, I was just sitting here thinking about that. You t- you're talking about it's it, it's not very expensive, but you know I mean what's what's on everybody's mind out west other than drought and that's fire. Yep. Um, and and you know it's not just uh, across the floor of the desert thing either. It's you know affects uh, all different uh, elevations and and. Certainly, montane rattlesnakes are are at risk. So that's I would I would say that's a very important type of research. Yeah, we have a lot of interest in in that suite of species that that lives in the Southwest because you know you'll see some some of the species out there like the New Mexico ridge nose rattlesnake that you know might get some funding from like U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and things like that where they get some grants. But there's a lot of species that kind of go. Um, neglected, at least from, you know, a research standpoint, there might be a lot of people out there gathering great, um, you know, um, citizen science data that we're able to use, you know, with the current data and things like that. But not a lot of people are full time every year going back and checking out what's going on with them and really digging into what's going on with these species. Because like you mentioned, wildfires um, in, important to learn about here in the Southwest, um, not only wildfire, but wildfire suppression, um, and then, you know, climate change and how it impacts some of these mountain species or rattlesnakes. That's certainly something we need to, to be looking at going into the future is, to, is how is climate change going to affect these species, especially some of the really high elevation ones. And you, you also have a um, working relationships with other, I would say, conservation and research groups, such as the uh, IUCN Viper Specialist Group. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So, um, we're a member of the IUCN Viper Specialist Group, and we are also what's called the fiscal sponsor for them. So essentially, we're a 501c3 organization that kind of took them under our wing to be able to accept donations on their behalf, um, help them if they're applying for grants to facilitate that money flow to get to some of the projects that the Viper Specialist Group is focused on. Um, and like the Rattlesnake Conservancy, the Viper Specialist Group has um, a broad spectrum of things that they're working on. Um, it's not only just research projects, it's education, it's social media, it's fundraising, it's all across the board. And there's a lot of synergy between you know, us as an organization and, and the IUCN Viper Specialist Group in ways that we can help each other in advancing our causes and you know, um, serving, serving our supporters that, that really help keep us going. I guess we should also mention, uh, just tell us briefly what IUCN is for those folks out there that aren't familiar. Uh, International Union for Conservation of Nature. I, I always go straight to the Viper Specialist Group and I always forget the, the IUCN bit that, yeah. that goes on there. Um, but, you know, we're doing, you know, the IUCN is a really large, fragmented body of small efforts that come from different groups. Like the, the IUCN as a whole, um, you know, they're run by all of these different working groups that are all over the world. Um, you know, you'll have some that'll be like this Viper Specialist Group. You know, there's ones that that are species specific. You know, if there's like critically endangered species. There's some that are focused entirely on them. Some that are, you know, larger focused on like a suite of species like the IUCN Viper Specialist Group. 
Um, but all of them, you know, in some way or another are a group of experts that are coming together that know the species that they're working on and can help kind of inform the greater conservation outcomes of these because the information that's gathered by these specialist groups informs um, what's called the red list, which many of you or you might have probably seen before. Um, yes. you, know, you go online, check it out. And some of them, and, and if you look up most of the rattlesnakes, most of them say like data insufficient, right? Or it's just, it's an unknown. Um, and that's a big thing we want to help change is, you know, if, if there is a species that is legitimately data insufficient, is get conservation funding where it's needed um, to get that research done. And if there's not a group actually doing the research, um, we will find a way to do it ourselves and get it done or fund a grad student or someone that can get out there and do it. And I guess, and I don't want to get into IUCN too much, but the other portion of that is, you know, you have all these people working to establish the status of all of these organisms. I mean, many, 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 many organisms. And then that information, you know, that stuff's all, you know, collected. It's all in, online it's all in the databases and it's all there as a huge package but other groups other conservation or conservation uh, organizations or, or just governments use this information oh yeah it's collected so it's a really big it, like you say it's sort of a everybody does their little bit and puts a little stuff in but collectively it's this huge project to understand this and sort of nail down the status of all these different animals whether yeah. it's a viper or a toad or you know or an orchid or something like that. So yeah, it has a big influence on policy. You know, um, a lot of the international treaties that come out, I mean, they take information straight from this IUCN red list and even fish and wildlife service here in the U S I mean, one of the first places they stop and look is like, all right, what information does the IUCN have on this species before they start going through a whole listing processes? You know, they're, they're trying to gather information from wherever they can. Um, so it is, it's really important and it's, it's something that's not been focused on a ton over the, the last, you know, 20 years or so. Um, you know, the IUCN Viper Specialist Group was pretty active, uh, I want to say like 10 years ago. And, you know, I, I kind of look at these specialist groups as they're like strike groups, right? You know, they'll usually kind of come together and you get members from all different groups because it's not just us with the Rattlesnake Conservancy. You've got people from the Orion Society, from Save the Snakes, all, all over the place. These different groups that are kind of coming together. And, you know, using our knowledge, using our network of people that we know to bring the right people in the room to, you know, help inform conservation actions for these species. I like this concept, too, this, of, like you say, a strike team or strike force. And it's, you know, it may, it may only be temporary. Yep. Uh, you, or you may only act for a year or two. Uh, and then you, maybe you don't disband, but maybe you're quiescent for a while. And then maybe uh, something comes up and then the group, you know, you get the band back together and, and put all the specialists in, to attack a problem. So you, you eliminate this huge top-down brick and mortar oriented organizations that are, you know, slow and cumbersome and are top heavy with bureaucracy. And then instead of you got all these people that, that do really good work and actually do work instead of manage work. So I think it's yeah, pretty cool. And and, you know, their concern is on conservation outcomes, right? It's not on, hey, I just want all the money you can give me, donation, do this. It's like they're coming together for one purpose. It's not lobbying. It's not politics. They care about the species. They want to know what's going on with them, and they want to see something good come out of that, which I think is is awesome. It's commendable. Um, we really enjoy being a part of it and and leading a good chunk of what's going on with um, with rattlesnakes within them and, and evaluating the species status for 
for all of our rattlesnakes um, worldwide, which is one of the things we're going to be biting off here pretty soon. It's a pretty monumental effort. Um, we started with just a, a small suite of species on, on data that we did have available, took a few species we knew there had been a lot of research on, and synthesizing all of that into a, a cohesive document about like what's the status of the species, what does the species need? What are research needs and things like that? I mean, it's it's a lot of work. It takes a lot of collaboration. And we recognize like, you know, with our team, we don't have all the experts, right? So we reach out into the community to get the people who are the experts. That's kind of where we've got um, these working groups that we've been putting together to help inform that, which is kind of similar to the Viper Specialist Group, but it's on a smaller scale of like, you know, hey, you're an expert on Eastern Diamondbacks. We're going to put together a group that knows Eastern Diamondbacks really well. You guys know Montane species really well. You guys know Massasagas. And just pulling people together that know these species really well to help us inform these conservation plans has been a huge help. I see. And I, I'm, I'm fairly certain that many of the rattlesnake species in the United States, in, in terms of their status, it's fairly well known. Perhaps there's a few surprises that I don't know about, but I imagine it, it's it's you know you you start moving into Mexico or uh, you know Central American places like that where a lot of these things may only be known from a handful of specimens. Uh, then then it gets kind of tricky, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, there's some some species where there might only be one or two vouchered specimens from it, um, and you know whether or not it's actually a um, a distinct species in some cases we're not even you know certain when we're looking at them um, and many of the areas are inaccessible too um, you know like we'd like to get data on it but maybe that area is too dangerous to be in on um, and we oh yeah yeah and you know we'll work with partners in those communities like we funded a research project down in uh, in Brazil and some of the areas where they're studying can get real tricky um, for being out there our team's going in March to go, uh, down down to Fortaleza area and, and get out there and, and take a look at some of the South American rattlesnakes that they're studying down there. But that species, or it's it was a subspecies, has now been lumped together as, as a um, single species down in the Crotalus durissus complex. Um, but they're still kind of treating it as its own distinct population segment. And I don't disagree because the life history is very different in that area than it is when you get into the rainforest and things like that of how the animals act. And I think there's a lot of value in learning about those subpopulations of species and, and informing the overall conservation outcome. But um, in some cases, we're not always able to, to get that data because either A, there's no one studying it, you know, B, there's no money or C, it's inaccessible um, to get them. But you hit the nail on the head. A lot of the ones going down, especially through Mexico, um, there's not much information at all about many of those species. And some of those, and speaking from personal experience, some of those rattlesnakes are in really high mountains and it's hard to breathe up there. And, and <laughs> it's just not, just not conducive to, uh, you, you know, a lot of people traipsing down, uh, around to, to figure out what's going on. It's, it can be tough work. Yeah. Not to mention, you know, in some cases it's like, you don't want to have repetitive invasive research on, some of these populations where at, at, at some point you might have to accept there's certain data you're not going to be able to get because it's too invasive on the population. Um, you know, you might, you might be able to get basic life history information, make some inferences using, you know, some GIS modeling like Maxent modeling to, you know, determine the extent of usable habitat they have. But in some cases, like you can't go out and do capture release with, you know, certain species over and over again. It's just too much on, on a population to be doing that. Yeah. Especially the, when you you don't really know the extent of the population, yeah. right? 
yeah, we don't know anything about some of them. So it's like, hey, maybe this is <laughs> maybe this is the only thing we've got to work with here. And, you know, we don't want to take out the one good thing we've got left on them. So, yeah, because I think some of those species, uh, I'm thinking of one in particular, they may be only found on one mountain or on one range of mountains. And then they're isolated, you know, from other species. And so it's not like they're across a 800 square mile region. They're only in suitable habitat. It's kind of like the, you know, there were this montane rattlesnakes in the Southwest, right? They're, they're not across the entire range. They're only in suitable habitat within that range, which means they're up in the mountains at, at certain altitudes. Yeah. And I think sometimes, um, you know, when like, uh, state agencies or federal agencies look at conservation for some of these rattlesnake species, they'll say, okay, let's just say one of the ridge-nosed rattlesnakes, for example, um, they'll say, okay, there's this many acres of available habitat for the species for conservation. But like you said, they're not looking at like, okay, just because there's available habitat, one, it doesn't mean all of it's occupied. Um, and two, it doesn't mean all of it's actually suitable, um, you know, as far as what they can actually live breed and eat and you know you can have a huge range with only maybe a few drainages that are great for the species in that area you know so it just it kind of depends on the species and in many of these areas there's a lot of external pressures on them too um everything from cattle ranching to climate change to overherping to um many of other things and i don't want anyone to ever get the impression that like we don't encourage people to get out and herp um, and, and check out these species. We just, we advocate for, you know, ethical herping and, you know, not over visiting some of those sites. Yes. Yes. Very good. You also have something called a defense fund. Mm-hmm. And can, uh, can you talk about what, what that's all about? Oh yeah, absolutely. So we started that up, I, I believe it's last year. This last two years has been kind of a blur with COVID as to what year it is anymore. But, um, during uh, when we started up, up the Rattlesnake Defense Fund, the intention was to have a set aside of funding that was going to be used entirely for focusing on legal and lobbying efforts to either change or stop rattlesnake roundups. Um, and we've been intimately involved with like a lot of like the rattlesnake festivals in the southeast. And one of the things that um, is kind of unique about our group is a lot of our, our our staff are very pragmatic, right? You know, we're we're not the type who are going to be picketing out in front of, um, you know, a state agency or something like that. Uh, I find it much more effective as an organization for us to spend time building relationships with a lot of the government officials, a lot of the people that are working for the state agencies who do really care about, you know, these animals. And you have to find a way to connect with them. And then also the people in the communities where things like rattlesnake roundups happen. And, you know, I'm sure you're fully aware of, of what rattlesnake roundups are. Um, you know, they're pretty gruesome events at, at some of them. Some of them are a little bit more tame. Um, it just kind of depends on which roundup that you're attending. Uh, but in many cases, it's kind of woven into the culture of the community where those roundups happen. And there's been a lot of efforts by a lot of different organizations over the years. And there's been a lot of headway in, in, in many cases. Um you can look at Claxton as a great example in Georgia of one that used to be a roundup that just transitioned. And then, uh, well, not just transitioned, it's been a number of years now. Um, and then Wiggum is another roundup that was in Georgia that uh, last year made the election to change to a conservation festival from a roundup. But, you know, they got pushed back with everything going on last year. And we're hoping this next year they're going to pick up as a conservation festival. But that funding 
that we have is going to be used for a lot of lobbying efforts in state and federal legislatures to try and get on um, get on the radar for either another bill focusing on like uh, animal killing contests that we can kind of piggyback on something else that's going through the legislation to try and get something that will be able to we, we don't want to like rip the ability of people to have these festivals in their communities away from them because it is a big um, revenue generator in their community, but get to a more sustainable and ethical way of having these events that doesn't involve, you know, big public slaughters at events, you know? Well, you know, and, and you guys, I, I visited the, uh, the page you have uh, on your website about the defense fund and, you know, immediately I'm struck by, uh, you know, a picture from, a, it's probably Sweetwater. It's the, it's the wall with all the bloody handprints on it. Yep. And you have kids dipping their hands in rattlesnake blood and then sticking their handprint on a wall. And That's fine. You're doing it too. <laughs> say that again. I said, it's kids doing it too. You know, yeah. They're, yeah. They're... It, it's almost inconceivable. It, you know, it's such a powerful image. And I guess there's two points I want to make about that is, is one that's a community that's gone way off the rails. Yep. Some, some of the folks in charge there are beyond the pale in terms of their humanity. I mean, they've just completely lost their humanity in, in my mind. But on the other side of it is I can't think of a better image to show a legisl a state legislator and say, look, this is going on in your state. Is this something okay, like you care to sanction? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you care to sanction this, this type of behavior? You, you, don't want to get rid of the festival, but you can't have this. What, what can you do? It's horrible, but it's, it's a, it's a great piece of leverage to work in, in the, you know, if you get, get a hold of the right people, it seems like those are, you know, that's a great image to, to show them and say, look, this, this is your state. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, we're working on it. Um, you know, we're actually about to retain a, a lobbying firm that's going to help out. Um, with with developing this because I mean the big thing with like these lobbying firms is you're you're kind of paying someone who has the network connection to get you in front of the right people right we've got the message we know what needs to happen we just need the connection to get us in front of the right people that can make it not make it continue you know we've been reaching out to representatives and you know states where roundups occur um, as all as also representatives on like the house natural resources committee and things like that. And there is some traction. Um, it's just, we're having to try and figure out the best way to put this in a good package that is palatable to everyone. Um, and is something that isn't going to come across as, you know, animal rights legislation. Cause unfortunately when it's packaged that way, you get a big pushback on it. Right. Right. Uh, you're, you're already starting on your back foot. Yep. When you do it that way. So you yeah. can't, like you say, you can't be out there with the pitchforks and the torches. No, nope. and you're not going to win. Work. No, I mean, they look at you like, hey, here's a crazy snake guy out in front of the building, you know, trying to tell us to save the the critters who are killing our cattle out in our, uh, our, our lots here and losing tens of thousands of dollars a year when they, you know, lose a, um, a, lose a, a cattle out in those areas. So we, we've got to be careful how we navigate them. I mean, you just look at species like, um, gray wolves and things like that, where it's been a huge challenge trying to manage those species in those areas. And that's a charismatic species. And these are the exact opposite, right? Yeah. When I, <clears throat> when I, uh, take off my, 
when I when I disassociate my own special feelings for them, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Um, well, let, let me ask you this: uh, You mentioned the the Claxton, Georgia. Uh, used to be a, it's a rattlesnake festival. Or it used to be a rattlesnake roundup, and and those folks uh, decided that uh, there's probably more money in the conservation, uh, it, approaching it from a conservation uh, uh, and a uh, celebration than uh, than a roundup. So. How how are they doing? Is that is that festival still? Is it going strong? Was that a good transition for that for that time? Oh yeah, yeah, it's been hugely successful. Because I mean, you know, really, at the end of the day, the folks that are coming to these festivals, they just want to see snakes, right? Um, what the disposition of them afterwards isn't really relevant to most people that attend the events, right? They just want to go see some big rattlesnakes and, you know, um, kind of get that shock and awe factor from saying, I saw the biggest rattlesnake I've ever seen before. And also go get some fried Oreos and whatever else you find around the <laughs> festival while you're there. Um, but it, it's been very successful. Um, you know, every year they make a ton of money. They're bringing in like big name country artists to come sing at their, you know, festival and things like that. Cause they do like a whole parade cause they do like a, a miss, miss rattlesnake um, type situation. we always take a photo with them every year where we'll tube a rattlesnake, you know, and kind of get up there with the, you know, their, their queen rattlesnake girl up there and take a photo with them and everything. So um, it's, it's great opportunity to reach a group of people who aren't always fond about rattlesnakes. And we always have some really interesting conversations and, we kind of, we, we bring a whole volunteer task force essentially when we go we'll bring like 10 people with us because um, it can be a little mentally wearing when you're out there for two days straight and, you know, you get a lot of people who are like, hey, check out this rattlesnake that I killed. And you get some, you know, bright and shiny, you know, budding herpetologists that are really excited about rattlesnake conservation and they get that. And it's like, sometimes you have to like rotate them out and say, hey, listen, you're, you're making a difference. You just got to keep talking to people. Um, and we've seen a shift in what people are coming to us for over the years since we've been going to the event. You know, the first couple of years, it was just like, here's all the dead rattlesnakes I've ever seen. And now it's, hey, um, do you have someone in the area who can come get this rattlesnake off my porch? Right. So we are seeing that culture shift. It's just it's slow. It's it's um, methodical. You really have to work with the community and build trust with them in those areas. Very good. So it's got a, a nice a nice uh, celebrational vibe. Oh yeah, for sure. It's a very rewarding experience. That's very interesting. Uh, what what other things does uh, uh, the Rattlesnake Conservancy do? What all, what other what have I missed here? When we're talking about the the various aspects of what you do. I missed something here. So we we do back on the research subject a little bit. Um, we do have some internal research projects that that we're working on. Um, in addition to just our overall status assessments that we're doing, um, we have a range wide disease monitoring study that we started a couple of years ago, looking at um, some viruses that we've seen in pit vipers of the southeast. Um, in specific, we saw one. It's called a, a tatadenovirus or adenovirus. Um, it's kind of the same strains which you hear for like the common cold, but in snakes, it's got some pretty nasty symptoms. Um, you know, a lot of them they kind of just they waste away. Um, they get like really bad diarrhea, almost like giardia um, in a snake, and they'll continue eating, but they just keep losing weight. They keep losing water because they're having so much diarrhea. And we initially saw this in, in captivity and in, um, some rattlesnake species. And 
we're like, you know what, let's start doing some shotgun testing out in the wild for where we've seen some snakes that maybe didn't look so hot when we saw them. Um, and we actually, we did detect it in a few populations out in the wild. And we've got a, a bunch of samples we still need to get caught up on on some that have been collected from across the Southeast to, to put together a, you know, a paper and, and look at a kind of range-wide look at this particular virus and some of the other ones. But we, um, we maintain, um, you know, a sample collection of like uh, cloacal swabs and other things like that, that if, if there are other researchers out there that want to test it for other things um, or other viruses, like I know there's a few groups out there doing um, viral studies on snakes and snake fungal disease and things like that. Um, so we're always looking to collaborate with people that that are doing this type of research or if, you know, you, you are one person who's out there you know, studying rattlesnakes and you're pulling a bunch of data, um, we can always use extra, you know, swabs from these animals to take a look at them. And, you know, you can get connected with us. We've got a whole data collection sheet and protocol for like what we're collecting and looking for on those. Um, but it's a pretty interesting study. Um, I don't know what exactly is going to be the uh, the outcome at the end of this of what we can or can't do. It always seems like it's a doom or gloom when you work on disease stuff, but it's good information. Yeah. Them. Well, it makes me wonder too. It's like, what, um, these, these things that happen and, and, you know, you, you wonder what the baseline is, is yeah, what, what's the, what's, what's the baseline viral load of your typical rattlesnake species or any, any species for that matter. They, they constant, it's like, you know, humans we're constantly, uh, we've got the rhinovirus thrown at us and we've got, of course, you know, we have COVID and things like that, but what's, you know, what's the normal thing that happens to snakes in the wild? Do they normally have you know, a number of these things, like you say, the adenovirus and whatnot, or, or is, are is some of these things because of, uh, climate change or habitat reduction, you know, s- additional stressors on the populations. I wonder, you know, what, what the impact is there. Yeah. And you know, that's something, I mean, we're, we're never probably going to know exactly what the baseline was, but we can, can start with something now and see if things get worse, you know, based on, you know, um, habitat patch size and things like that. If you take, you know, some species that require big tracts of land and things like that um, and isolate them into a smaller area, um, does, does their viral loads increase? Are we seeing more disease in a population because they've got more stressors? I mean, that, that's information we're certainly interested in that, you know, can, can inform conservation outcomes and plans for these species going forward. Well, let me ask you this too. Uh, there's something I was thinking about today because I, you know, I heard today that there were uh, three snow leopards, uh, zoo specimens that that died of coronavirus. Is, is coronavirus uh, uh, specific to mammals, or does uh, it does it does it impact reptiles in any way? Does anybody know? That's a good question. Don't have an answer to it. Um, I will say with the uh, the atadenovirus, we initially thought that it was taxon specific, right? Like there are atadenoviruses in many different species, right? But we thought, you know, there'd be a strain that's only specific to say tortoises and turtles, another one like lizards, things like that. But interestingly, the one that we were studying uh, or we are still studying crosses over multiple taxons. I mean, we, we saw it in um, beaded lizard. Um, that one was in captivity. It wasn't a wild specimen. As far as we're aware, there's not been any that have tested from the wild for Gila monsters or beaded lizards. But it's the same strain that came from that, that was in pythons. Um, it was also in papyrids, cobras, mambas. I mean, a number of different species that it crossed over through there. Um, and interestingly, not all the species were affected the same. 
it seemed like pit vipers were especially susceptible to it versus a lapid seemed to do pretty well, um, which kind of makes sense, right? You know, lapids are out there. A lot of them eating other snakes. They're probably, you know, adapted to kind of have some level of disease load that they're picking up from everything that they're eating all the time. Um, but the pit vipers just, they, they did not fare well, you know, six months to a year, they were kind of on their way out for the ones that, that have gotten it, even the ones that were in the wild and things like that. Interesting. And, and so these are, what, what is the word? Z- zonotic? They can yeah, jump well, from. To humans would be the. To um, humans. Zonotic, yep. Okay. And so perhaps that's an, yet, yet another keeper protocol issue. It could be. Um, I'd certainly be interested to see if it's ever one that can, can cross over to humans. Um, of course, uh, you know, my, my wife, she's a, a laboratory scientist and she's been assisting, well, kind of leading most of the, the um, uh, DNA side of that, of helping out with it and running PCR for these samples is uh, had her test me and everything. It's like, okay, I've been in contact with a lot of these. Let me make sure I'm not carrying a viral load that could, you know, potentially spread uh-huh. to other animals and things like that. Thankfully, negative as far as I'm aware, but um, could be one that, you know, had it for a period of time or anything like that. But no matter what, um, you know, I, I always encourage people because there's things they, that we just don't think about as far as um, like we use the same shoes that you got in your herp room is that you go out on a hike somewhere and things like that. And it's like, hey, you know, you might want to um, have different shoes that you wear in these areas or different clothes or things like, like that. I know it's not always practical to, you know, change every time you go to a new new site, you know, that you're out there herping. But making some level of effort, you know, if you've got a snake hook in a bucket that you leave in your car all the time that you use for every snake call that you go out on, like take two minutes and just spray it down with some dilute bleach and wipe it out real good just to prevent any, you know, possible contamination. Um, there's a lot of external factors there that may not just be humans. I mean, birds could be tracking stuff between sites. I mean, there's any number of things that can cause it, but if we can do anything to not contribute to that, that's certainly going to um, be beneficial to the species. Gotcha. Understand. Yeah. I, I know I, before COVID, I was moving around from this country to that country. So I, I, you know, get home and I, I never wear my, those clothes anywhere, but in the field, but I would come home and then, you know, of course everything gets washed, but the boots get not only washed, but they get bleached and uh, it kind of shortens their, it their does, life yeah. cycle. <laughs> but uh, I think it's, it's important to do uh, just to make sure that I'm not taking something from Asia and bringing it to South America or, or something like that. So try to be careful with that. The same thing with my, you know, my, you know, what do you call it? Rubber boots or uh, wading boots the same way. So. Yeah. They definitely start falling apart after a while. Um, even like our, uh, our snake tube sets and stuff. I mean, we go through them pretty quickly from between like bleach and them being in the sunlight and things like that. They just get beat up and fall apart. And we use some of the thick polycarbonate ones. Um, you know, we just get like polycarbonate tubing and make our own sets for them for having those. So, but they certainly start to fall apart after enough sun exposure and bleach and everything. Interesting. So uh, tell me again, how many people are involved in this entire organization? Do you have like a, a head you, you know, I, I wish I could give you a solid number because it's dynamic, right? Um, as far as like our core group, um, we have a, a board of directors. It's five people. Um, we've got two full-time paid employees. Um, I'm currently the executive director. I don't take salary right now. Um, hopefully someday in the future, that's, that'll be the full-time gig. I concurrently work as a federal employee at the same time, but the next couple of years, it's looking like I'll be able to move over full time. 
And then we've got, you know, anywhere from 15 to 25 volunteers at any given time and right around 12 to 15 instructors that are helping out with training courses and things like that. So, you know, collectively, you know, we've got 40 or 50 people that kind of pull together to, to help make our mission happen. Um, and that's especially ev evident when we have like our annual fundraiser, like get buzz for buzz tales. We'll, you know, have like 30, 20, 30 volunteers out there helping run that event or, um, we also host like the, the venomous herpetology symposium um, that we do that biennially. We're going to have it at the end of next year. The first time we did it was in Miami in 2018. It was a big success. Um, we had about 200 people there. Um, and then our next one is going to be in San Antonio, Texas, um, September 14th through the uh, 17th. Um, next year. And that's that's going to take a lot of volunteer work to, to make that event happen, too, because there's a lot of moving parts that go into these conferences. Tell me again what that is. It's the Venomous Herpetology Symposium. Okay. And and who who comes to that? Is it you get uh, lecturers, you get herpetologists and conservation people come and give talks? And is it is it kind of like, is that what its format is? Yeah, so we've got people from a lot of different backgrounds, and kind of our our vision with the with the venomous herpetology symposium was to kind of bring together these fragmented groups of people that study different aspects of venomous snakes. You know, you've got Venom Week, which is really very medically focused, and you know they are making a lot of effort to bring in. Um, other speakers to talk about conservation and all different aspects of it. Um, and then you've got other things out there like biology of the pit vipers, which is great, really focuses on natural history of like these different pit vipers okay. and things like that. Um, this one, we were hoping to bring everyone together that would have different focuses in venomous herpetology. Like our invited speakers for next year is like Andy Holy Cross, um, Johan Marias, Wolfgang Wooster, Randy Babb, Jesse Krebs. Um, we've got a lot of different people that are coming into the symposium. They're zoo background researchers, et cetera. Okay. All right. Um, and uh, you also talked about the the Save the Buzz Tales. Is that your yeah. fundraiser? Yeah, we do an annual event called Get Buzzed for Buzz Tales. So, oh, that's it. Okay, Get Buzzed yeah. for Buzz Tales. Yeah, yeah. So it's great. Get a lot of people together. We get like microbreweries in the area to bring different beers out and stuff like that. Have a live auction, raise money, and in the majority of the funds from that event go towards funding like our research grants that we give out every year and um, some of our education programs and things like that to really help make that happen. So is that, is that in Jacksonville as well, or? Yeah, so we've we've kind of rotated out different places that we've done it. Um, you know, we've done them in Central Florida, North Central Florida, but usually in the Southeast somewhere. Um, I think going forward, we're probably going to be doing a lot of them at St. Augustine Alligator Farm, um, which is where we hosted it last year and was great success. It's a great group to work with. Um, St. Augustine Alligator Farm has also been a big supporter of, of ours. They've provided some some grants through things like Quarters for Conservation and things like that. So, Okay. Sounds interesting. What time of the year do you have that? We usually have it um, any, usually right around April, May timeframe, um, just kind of depending on availability of facilities. But uh, generally, it's it's around that timeframe. So we're, we're starting to gear up for planning for that right now. So we'll be uh, we'll, we'll be those ones bothering everybody for helping out with auction items and everything else like that to, to get us up and running. But um, you should see some announcements out pretty soon about that. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, feel free to reach out and, uh, if I can, uh, you know, su support it on the show and, and, and let people know what's coming down, uh, I'll be happy to do that too. So. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, 
So this, you know, I, I appreciate you coming on the show and telling me more about the organization. And, and uh, we, we talk about rattlesnakes a lot on this show. And that's, you know, through no small part because I, I, I love rattlesnakes. But, uh, and uh, I seem to hang out with a lot of people who are just uh, totally invested in rattlesnakes in one way or the other. Uh, but when you, when you've got free time, but it, you know, what, do, what do you do? Do you, what do you, what do you do when you're not being, uh, Mr. Uh, uh rattlesnake conservancy? <laughs> well, as you might imagine, I don't get a lot of free time, basically working two full-time jobs with being a, a fed and running the organization. But when I am able to find time for myself, I, I of course am a, an, an avid herper. I love getting out and hiking, but, um, I don't spend a lot of time photographing. Um, I get most of my enjoyment out of just sitting and learning about the animals and enjoying them. And, you know, just the, the act of finding them is enough for me. Most of the time, I, I really enjoy it. And, checking out new areas that are challenging that I've not been to before and don't know the habitat and terrain and just kind of trying to figure out how to dial things in. I get a lot of enjoyment out of that. And so I, I guess you did some of that when, uh, out, out there in Arizona, but, uh, now you're, you're going to change focus and shift gears a little bit when you move back to Florida. Yeah, by all means. I mean, I'll probably be out here pretty frequently seeing as we've got some, research projects that we're trying to get up and running down here, um, you know, as well as funding some projects in, in the area. So I'll, I'll probably be back to Arizona a number of times a year to, to help out and get some, get some things up and running. Um, not to mention, we'll, I'm sure we'll host more training courses here in, in Phoenix and other areas like that, since we don't have much on the West coast right now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Florida is great, but Arizona is rattlesnake central. It is. Yep. There's no getting around it, but you know, I mean, at the, the, the draw of people just coming out to the sea, the rattlesnakes is just, you know, I, I wish I had an, an idea of the, the numbers. It's, it's going to be uh, incredible. Uh, yeah, just the number of people that float out there every, every monsoon just to, yeah, that's actually something we're pretty interested in as, as a research project is to try and gather some, voluntary data from people that are kind of traveling here um that can be anonymous just to try and get an idea of the numbers of people that are coming into the state you know um i know there's been some efforts through you know trying to look at like hunting permits and things like that but unfortunately it's, as you know it's kind of hard to divvy out who's getting them just for going out there to go herping and who's actually coming here to hunt and things like that but um we'd like to try and get an idea on that information as well of, of who all's coming into the state and checking them out well, you know, I mean, it, we're, we are a recreational activity now, the, those of us who partake in field herping. It's, it's not just a, a crazy thing. Uh, it's, it's really like, it's like bird watching or whale watching or something like that. We're, we're semi-organized um, and um, we, we do these things en masse. So um, I would hand over cash for a, a field herping or a herp photography stamp or whatever you want to call it, um, in Arizona every year, I would ha- happily plunk down my 25 bucks or 50 bucks. I hope it's 25. I would happily plunk that money down to get the stamp or in slash permit, whatever you want to call it, uh, to, to go do those things. If that, you know, if that m- money could also be earmarked to support the conservation of those animals and things like that, I'd be happy to do so. I think a lot of other people would as well, because we, you know, the, well, you know, birders support their animals, uh, their, their love through, you know, conservation efforts, Audubon and hunters use ducks unlimited and so on and so forth. So, you know, Harper's, I think it's, it's time for us to, to, do the same kind of thing. I think, you know, 
there's duck stamps, there's uh, that kind of thing. So why not, why not a herping stamp or, or at least, you know, you know, you can do, take a photographs of a rattlesnake on a road or something and get a special stamp to move it off the road and, you know, not get a ticket or something. So. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And it's something we should certainly try and push for and, and advocate for. Um, you know, and I encourage you or any of your listeners, you know, if you, if you ever have things that you see that you're, you're like, Hey, we need to do this to, to try and help rattlesnakes or you're recognizing a problem while you're out field herping, like get in contact with us. You know, we can, you know, even if we don't have the bandwidth to, you know, maybe champion the effort that you're trying to take on, you know, we can at least throw our weight behind you and, and help out with representing for, you know, talking to a, a government agency if we need to facilitate some conversations. Cause as you might imagine, um, you know, if an individual approaches, you know, like state fishing game, um, a lot of times it just kind of gets blown off or shut down. Right. But, you know, if you have an organized group of people that go talk and, you know, show that you, you have a purpose, you know, you're, you're organized, you're going to accomplish something. A lot of times you can, you, you can move, move mountains um, if you got the right group of people together for it. Yeah. And I, I think maybe it, maybe it's, it's not so hard in states where, well, like Arizona, I mean, Arizona has a lot of rattlesnakes. And so there's a lot of knowledge and a lot of awareness of rattlesnakes, but you know, thinking of maybe um, like, well, let's, let's talk about Wisconsin, which has the, the timber rattlesnake, but only in small areas. And um, what's, you know, those seems like, those seem, those seem like marginal places to me in terms of moving the needle on anything in terms of snake conservation or rattlesnake conservation, if you will, because there, there's, there's not many of them. There's not many left and it's just not a big concern. It's, you know, place like Wisconsin, you're going to be concerned about deer and bears and things like that. You're not going to really yep. uh, get a lot of focus on, uh, on rattlesnakes when, you know, you might have timber walls in your state or something. Yeah. And in some cases, you know, um, in, in other states, there's good opportunities to find partnership with species that, that are going to benefit rattlesnakes as well. Um, you know, for example, in the Southeast, uh, we really love working with partners that, that focus on like quail conservation or gopher tortoise conservation that, that are going to do these things that are, are going to manage habitat there. That's going to benefit the species that we care about as well. Um, but, you know, sometimes you got to get creative in, in how you're going to come up with solutions to conserve species. And um, many times that that does involve, you know, working with, with hunters and private landowners and things like that, that you've got to, got to find a way to sell it to them. It can't just be like, you know, every now and again, you get this unicorn that just, they, they've got a huge chunk of land. They love rattlesnakes. And that's awesome. And we love working with them. But more often than not, you know, you really got to pitch your case and, and find a way to do it. But um, there's a lot of states, that I think, that would be good candidates for that. Like you said, you know, California, Arizona, New Mexico, um, some of the South, uh, Texas would probably be a challenge, uh, like many things are there. But um, some of the other states, I, I think there's some potential there. But um, we can always make a run for it and see what happens. Well, I didn't mean to pick on Wisconsin either. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now I'm like I'm big on Texas too, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, different areas have different challenges, and let's just say that um, <laughs> nothing, nothing against the great state of Wisconsin and their delicious cheese. Uh, but it, yeah, so it's it's sort of this everything is sort of a set piece battle depending on where you're at. You know, um, what tools you have, and is the public on your side? I don't know. Maybe maybe not so much in Wisconsin, as opposed to. Lots of people in Phoenix and Tucson who 
may have rattlesnakes in their yard or nearby in the park where they jog every morning. And so they're pretty cool with it. So. Yeah. And thanks to, you know, conservation efforts from groups like, you know, rattlesnake solutions with Brian Hughes and all them that have made a huge difference on the way that, that people, um, think about rattlesnakes. I mean, when I moved here to Phoenix, um, it's been a very different experience interacting with the public here. Um, I, I still get some of that, like here's the rattlesnakes I hate and kill, but you know, overall the, um, perception seems to be very different here compared to, to what we deal with a lot in the Southeast. Um, out where I live at, it's kind of a rural area, but thankfully I've convinced, convinced most people at least give me a ring. They've got a snake in their yard, you know, and they're, they're not taking a shovel or shotgun straight to it. And, I tell people all the time, like, uh, I don't expect you to love rattlesnakes. I, I just ask that you leave them alone. And I'm happy with that. Yeah. Give me a call if you need some help, right? Yep. Very good. Well, listen, it, it's been great to talk to you and get to know you a little bit. Um, uh, like I said, it, it's this is sort of a cold call for me. Um, I didn't know much about the organization. I really did. Ha- I think we've chatted maybe on, online a little bit, but not much. And your organization, you, you, people can Google the, the Rattlesnake Conservancy and you have a, a web presence or you have a, a website and you have a Facebook presence and Twitter presence as well. I'm not sure. No Twitter, but we've got Instagram, Facebook and TikTok that's on there. Okay. All right. Very good. I don't know why you don't have Twitter. You should get Twitter too. There's already so many, Mike. <laughs> you can barely keep up with them. Yeah. Uh, well, science, you know, there's a lot of, there's herp, you know, I'm going to call it herp Twitter. There's a subset of science Twitter that I'd call herp Twitter. There's, there's quite a bit of it there. So you guys would fit right in naturally with that. We, we need to get someone who's cheeky to run a Twitter. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you've got somebody that can do it. Um, but it's been great to talk to you. Uh, and have, have we really covered everything about the organization that we, that you want to talk about? Um, obviously sure. folks, obviously folks can go to the website and they can, they can make a donation and support it. And, and, uh, you have various levels of support. So I urge everybody listening to, to support the, the organization. I have not yet, but I, I, I plan to, uh, awesome. it's coming up on the end of the year when I start dishing out my hard earned cash to various conservation groups uh, on a yearly basis. So, and, uh, what else, what else can we talk about with the group in terms of supporting it or, what else do we know about it? Yeah, you know, um, there's a lot of ways you can support what we do, whether it's, you know, as a volunteer, um, if you're someone who's who's a good writer or you're, you know, a field herper who wants to share notes about what you've done in the field and things like that, you know, um, help with like blog articles, whatever it is. Um, you know, a lot of this, this information is great ways to, to help people feel personally connected with what we do. And you know, that comes from us sharing our experiences. You, you can't generate passion in other people unless you show them your own passion for these animals. So um, I, I encourage all of you to continue to, to share um, the information about them, um, continue to work together on on conserving these species. And, you know, if you're able to, I always, I, I'm probably the worst executive director out there. I hate asking people for money, but please, by all means, you know, if you um, if you have the means, um, please consider supporting us as a, as a member or, or donating. Um, a lot of people think those $5 a month or whatever it is doesn't make a big difference. But in a small organization like ours, where we don't have a multi-million dollar budget, that, that $5, you know, can make the difference between whether we're making rent or not and things like that. So it, uh, it does help. Um, and, you know, we don't spend an insane amount of money on useless things where we, we focus on 
what's important and trying to make a difference on the ground and what we do and, and your support is greatly appreciated in all of it. And you did, you did mention that you are a 503C group, right? But yeah, we didn't we use the word, we did not use the word nonprofit, which we should use. Yeah, it is 501C3 nonprofit organization. Yeah, right, absolutely. Nonprofit organization. So, uh, so that's a, important to let, let folks know that all, all the money goes to run the organization uh, there's nobody raking in the bucks on the back end somewhere. Yep. We're governed by a board of directors and budget set and things like that. So very good. Well, thanks so much for talking to me. And, uh, uh, we, uh, we'll, we'll get the show out and we'll get, uh, some, uh, additional airtime for r- the rattlesnake conservancy. And, uh, hopefully I'll get to meet you in person somewhere, maybe in Florida or something. Yeah, maybe Arizona. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, if you make yeah. it out here in the next few months, should be able to meet up with you. Otherwise, oh. I might be able to meet up with you to go herping, or maybe on one of your trips down to South America or something. We'll team up and be good. Yeah, yeah. Always looking forward to that. All right. Well, thank you so much, Tony, and uh, have a good evening. Yeah, you too. It's been great. Hey, folks. Me again. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tony Daly Cruz, and I'm back on just to add a few thoughts here at the end. So whenever something really bad happens out in the world, you know, some tragedy that gets a lot of media attention, I always think about something Fred Rogers said. Uh, yeah, it's Fred Rogers, you know, you know, Mr. Rogers from the neighborhood. And he had this message for children. Always look for the helpers. You know, anytime bad things happen, there are always people who jump in there and they help, they give aid. You know, if you look, you'll find them. And I think this resonates in other places. Uh, You know, there's not a day that goes by without some bad news about the natural world, you know, about about this bird or that ecosystem or climate change or or whatever. And I think most of us experience, uh, you know, a sort of fatigue where we just can't bear to hear one more bit of bad news. So I try to think about all the helpers out there, and there are millions of them, you know, doing a little or doing a lot. And I featured a number of helpers on this show, folks like Tony and his organization, or Bob Ferguson with his calendar project, or or somebody like uh, like Priya Nunjapa, you know, working quietly and effectively from within the system itself. And there are a lot of helpers listening, and I want to say thanks to you all, even if you're just helping other helpers by buying calendars or memberships and organizations that work to protect and preserve. You know, it really matters. So I'll get off my soapbox now, but please see the show notes for more information on the Rattlesnake Conservancy. And thanks again for listening. That's it for episode 53. Thanks once again to Tony Daly Cruz for coming on the show. I really enjoyed our conversation, Tony, and uh, hopefully we'll get to hang out somewhere in the future. Thanks once again to Ben Staganga for supporting the show, and thanks as always to all of the So Much Bingo patrons. And if you would like to kick in a few bucks to support the show, you can do so via Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash so much bingo, and so much bingo is all one word. You can also make one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo. Just drop me an email to somuchpingle at gmail.com for more details. And don't forget that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at somuchpingle.com. And you can also join the So Much Pingle Facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests. And last but not least, you can reach me directly at somuchpingle at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves and don't forget to hurt better.